Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world and around the UK. And as ever, we've got a lot uh, to cram in in our time together. Uh, This is how we're going to structure it, if it's okay with all of you. A few announcements from me, uh, then on to... Uh, my theme of the podcast, which is looking at the British economy hurtling towards the cliff's edge uh, and the implications. We're going to contextualise and reflect on consequences in the light of the uh, cliff edge that we are heading towards this autumn and winter. And by the way, no wonder Gordon Brown has, uh, as ever, come up with a more precise and focused analysis than the absent cabinet ministers and prime ministers and so on, on uh, where we are and what should be done immediately to mitigate the immediate consequences of this crisis. Anyway, more of that uh, to come. Amazing questions and a range of questions from you, all, of course, urgently topical. A bit of kind of August fun in there as well. We've got the Reverend Canon Paul Abathnot linking current political dramas to Premiership football at the start of another season. Uh, we've got, um, yeah, reflections on books that you're reading over August, as well as urgent questions about the current political dramas we are living through, as ever. And by the way, I found this ever since I was a political journalist, you know, in the 80s. August isn't quiet. There are either kind of ripples that become a wave when politicians return in September, or um, there are immediate noisy events. Uh, preparing for the my show at the Edinburgh Festival, I was thinking about when I was last there, pre-pandemic, in uh, the summer of 2019. Of course, little did we know what dramas were going to erupt with the pandemic. But what an August that was. It was the era of the hung parliament in Westminster. And uh, everybody was on the phone to each other as to how they can deal with Johnson's threat to leave the European Union without a deal by the end of October. And oh, all sorts of things were going on that August. Um, I'm going to be on some of the shows in Edinburgh sort of rooting how we got from there to here. Oh, bloody hell. If anyone told us where we'd end up, I think we'd have all gone and into a darkened room for the last three years. But anyway, yeah, August is uh, tends to be a bit frantic. So, well, I've made one of the announcements. Just a reminder again, I'm live at the Edinburgh Festival, different show every day. What it will be is like, you know, sometimes in a play, an eight-born play, where he plays around with the idea of even the cast not knowing what's quite going to happen next. Each day, you know, it's like a light being shone. We say, oh, yeah, we will focus in more on this theme or that theme. And there will be different predictions that we will make each day. And, of course, the questions will be different. Yeah, we'll of course each day address the immediate and the consequences of the immediate, but then focus in on the truss era or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, get your ticket for that one. Blimey. You know where it is. I hope by now the link will be in this podcast. It's um, at the Symposium Hall Amphitheatre in Hill Square, very much in the centre of it all. It's Venue 43, and the link will be on this podcast. It's at 11 o'clock each day, so you can start your day at the festival with this and and then come again, because we've got to delve deep for the whole lot from Monday, August the 15th. Talking about trust, September the 19th at King's Place, there will be the start of the Truss era special rock and roll politics because by then if it is her and it's not certain of course but if it is her we will be what a couple of weeks into the Truss era one that I suspect will fascinate historians probably for all kinds of alarming reasons so get your tickets for that and for those of you miles from London it's being streamed live too the ones at the festival you have to be there because we're going to delve deep together. On Patreon, thanks so much for subscribing. I hope you've all now got the bonus podcast for August, delving deep into the relationship between David Cameron and Steve Hilton. 
a relationship which, like so many of these where prime ministers choose their kind of top advisor, top confidant in number 10, ends in tears, ends badly. They're not talking to each other. We know of others like that, don't we? And some of you have emailed saying, can we please have Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell? So you will, in September, as a bonus podcast. Then we'll go and revisit some special general elections. Had a request for 2005. And that is an interesting one, really interesting for lots of reasons. Labour's third successive election win, but seeds of turmoil lurking. There we are, Edinburgh Festival, King's Place, the start of the Liz Truss era special and uh, the Cameron Hilton relationship. I knew them well, both of them in opposition, in the sense that they, well, I saw a lot of them. I kind of reflect on that as well. Anyway... What a report from the uh, Governor of the Bank of England, the Bank of England generally, on the state of the economy. And as I said at the beginning, if Gordon Brown were Prime Minister now, he would be back from his holiday uh, within a nanosecond. He would call his uh, uh, confidant, Ed Balls, who might well have been on holiday as well, and Ed Balls would have been expected to come back. His Chancellor would have been expected to come back because Ed Balls, of course, was never his chancellor, but absolutely spoke to him on an hourly basis when in government on uh, economic matters. And uh, they would already be preparing for the hell of the autumn and winter. In contrast, and it is a kind of symbol, really, of uh, the way things have gone in recent years, uh, Boris Johnson is on holiday. He's enjoying himself hugely. This is what he thought being prime minister was all about, the sort of glamour of, you know, if you've seen him, he's kind of on an aeroplane one moment with a military uniform, then he's at some shooting place, and um, then he's on holiday, then he had a party with his to celebrate his wedding, and this is what it was meant, and now he's doing an honours list, oh yeah, pleasing his friends like Paul Dacre, yeah, yeah, power without responsibility, the Chancellor's on holiday, and so on. And we know about the Foreign Secretary and the former Chancellor, what they're doing. It is, you feel, you know, that sort of July 1914, I'm not drawing a precise parallel, of course, where, uh, you know, it's a great book by Julia or Juliet Nicholson about July 1914, Britain on the edge of that First World War and everyone having a great time swimming and walking in a glorious summer. Um, You feel kind of a bit like that, you know, with all the things that are going on. But I thought there were two things arising from that Bank of England report, which have been slightly overlooked in some quarters. The first was this. In uh, the interviews given subsequently, and I think at the uh, press conference when this gloomy report was unveiled, and I'm told the tone of the press conference was uh, funereal, the Governor of the Bank of England stressed one thing. Whenever he was in conversation with businesses, companies around the UK about their concerns, their main concern was labour shortages. And this is one of the oddities about the current position, that the economy is slowing down, uh, it's going to go into recession, it's unavoidable now, as do the Bank of England. Old Liz Truss pretends that, you know, it is avoidable. And if it happens, it's down to the Bank of England and everybody else, Europe, no doubt, Putin, you know, China. But it looks as if it's inevitable. And yet there is this uh, pent-up demand because uh, the governor said that the main issue when he spoke to these companies were labour shortages. In other words, companies want to do more, and clearly there's a demand for them to do more, which generates a degree of economic activity, but they can't get the staff. And we all know this. We all see it in front of our eyes every day, whether, you know, especially now in August, you know, in the holiday sector, the leisure sector. Restaurants now really is like going back to the 1970s. Now, I was far too young to go to restaurants often in the 1970s, but I was occasionally taken by my parents or indeed my grandparents. And But the only thing us kind of teenagers in the 70s could afford was a trip to a wimpy bar or something. 
Anyway, but when I went with my grandparents or anything, it was always low-level crap. You were waiting for ages and all the rest of it. And we could feel it going back there. We went to, um, uh, with some friends, we were staying in quite a kind of posh little village in Kent on Sunday morning recently after a really great party the night before. And we went for a breakfast in this posh, it was a town. And it was, we must wait an hour uh, and you could, there was an open kitchen, and you could see two poor sods sweating away. And we said, you know, when's the, when's the food coming? They said, Sorry, we're really short of staff. And now that is, of course, a kind of uh, posh, affluent problem. Oh, my God, waited so long for this brunch. Bloody outrageous. What is this country coming to? But um, it's a small, tiny example of a much deeper crisis. Now, whenever this is analysed, uh, the BBC and others feel legitimised to raise the consequences da, 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 of the pandemic and lockdown and some people deciding, oh, I could get a bit more of this. Let's face it, a kind of work ethic is not uh, one of the kind of characteristics necessarily of this country. But it's not really allowed on the BBC or in the political space at the moment. But this is partly to do with Brexit. And we've got to say it again and again, because the reason why the UK is going to suffer more than many other countries, remember its growth rate at the moment is the lowest in the G7, is because of Brexit. Many layers of the Brexit deal negotiated by Lord Frosty Frost, um, the uh, naive out-of-depth courtier who is now the hero of the sort of uh, right commentariat. You can't get the stuff because they all buggered off to Eastern Europe. These people absolutely immersed with the work ethic. And they, of course, are not welcome anymore. And it is a massive problem. Not just in that sort of, oh my God, I waited two hours for a glass of wine to be served at my table. The NHS and other urgently sort of crisis-ridden public services, they need the staff. Airports, it's one of the reasons airports are in chaos. They can't get the staff. And although, as Gordon Brown noted, unemployment will rise now because a load of companies will, I'm afraid, go bust. Inflation leads to some companies being unable to cope. The whole Brexit thing has been catastrophic and is an issue in um, the crisis that the UK faces. Now, in other ways, the UK is a bit more sheltered, say, than Germany, which is so dependent on Russian gas. But that, as we've already discovered, has consequences for the UK and others. The UK, as ever, short-termist in its thinking and in the way the contrived and clumsy markets that have been devised for the privatised sectors like energy, think short-term. So there has been no planning ahead in terms of building up gas so we can have supplies when prices go bonkers. The thinking is always short-termist in these ineffective markets. And by the way, you know, Keir Starmer, who focuses pragmatically on what works, a phrase he's lifted from Tony Blair, really can expose the flaws in these markets. I mean, if Theresa May and Nick Timothy could talk about the flaws in these markets, he can, as a way of making a critique about what's happened over the last 12 years and indeed uh, well before that. But this issue of the energy crisis in which um, Putin can pull many levers to cause further disruption in the autumn and winter raises another question, which is really taboo. If Brexit is taboo, so is this. I mean, we've discussed it on this uh, podcast. It's not really widely discussed which is, again and again, you hear, and you hear it in the leadership contest, Liz Truss there, you know, with her Margaret Thatcher look and dress. Um, although, by the way, she's lightened up a bit, which is a, a much more attractive public projection. If I were advising her, which I, you would be surprised to hear, I'm not, but, I, you know, a lot of um, the cabinet listen to this podcast, and Liz might be one of them. That's who she should project, her real self, not pretend and be burdened by the pretense of being Margaret Thatcher. But
But anyway, there we are. Russia must lose. Russia, you know, every centimetre of uh, Ukrainian territory, etc. Russia must be expelled from. They must be defeated, etc., etc. What happens if Putin disagrees? To pose the question is not to condone his killing. Of course not. He is a tyrant with a capacity for indiscriminate violence on an epic scale, and we should all be alarmed by it. Of course, that's a statement of uh, the obvious, and one that, by the way, no one will disagree with. But there is an issue about how this ends. I've spoken before, I think, um, about a very good uh, book that the historian A.J.P. Taylor wrote. Well, actually, no, uh, sorry, the one I spoke about before was his book on the origins of the First World War and how almost by accident the world headed towards the terrible conflagration of August 1914. Talked about how July 1914 was a kind of month of innocent bliss and then hell. He also wrote a book, wasn't as good, by the way, but it was it's quite interesting, called How Wars End. It, it wasn't a good book. He was towards the end of his life, and it was pretty thin gruel. But the theme is fascinating and gripped him, How Wars End. And it would be really interesting to get his analysis of this, because until there is an end... Uh, and it will, in the end, do you remember I, I interviewed for this podcast some time ago, right at the beginning of this nightmare, Jonathan Powell, who is uh, one of the most insightful figures on foreign affairs in the UK, based on deep experience and a capacity for analysis. And he was saying that in the end, there will have to be a negotiation. And I don't think it is blasphemous to suggest that the sooner that starts, the better. And that will involve compromise. And through that, you know, just accepting that that is going to happen at some point, and how many more lives do we want to be lost until that point, you can see then a route through the immediate crisis in energy. Now, I know the long-term solution is to be no longer dependent on gas of any sort, let alone Russian gas. But that's not going to get us through the next or three years. And when people say, I wonder if uh, the resolve of Europe will be challenged by this autumn and winter, well, you can already see it happening. And it's very easy for us to take a lofty view of Germany and say, you know, again, what a terrible, Merkel completely misread everything. It's time to be revisionist about Merkel. She was a catastrophe. She wanted uh, Russian gas. She thought she could have it on the cheap. She became dependent on Putin and all the rest of it. Well, A, that simplifies a more complicated situation. And B, that doesn't provide any analysis as to what happens next in Germany and elsewhere. And I say there's a huge knock-on effect, because if Germany isn't getting Russian gas, they'll look for the supplies that the UK have, and the prices go up and up and up. So I think these two taboos, Brexit and its calamitous consequences, obviously not with us a lot on our, on this, on our rock and roll politics cooperative. We reflect a lot on this, but in the public arena, it's still near silence. And the BBC is still, I, I speak to BBC people alarmed that when the whole Dover thing happened, many outlets were too scared to link it to Brexit. They had to bring on Simon Calder, the travel specialist to do it. But also on Ukraine. Because Putin is a tyrant, it it is almost a taboo to say, well, how is this going to end? But it will be through a negotiation. And in the short term, let's be honest, access to Russian gas would be a factor in uh, limiting the scale of the energy crisis. Now, people say, oh, that's appalling. You can't, that's giving in to Putin and all the rest of it. Watch it happen under pressure of um, economies falling over the cliff um, in the coming months. So in terms of the political consequences, I mean, this will be darkly fascinating. 
Some people will not be able to pay these energy bills, as Gordon Brown has pointed out in, it was an article in The Observer on Sunday. So that in itself will have huge consequences. There is talk of uh, social unrest, people deliberately refusing to pay bills. This happened. I was the BBC's local government correspondent, no less, um, when the poll tax was introduced in um, the late 1980s. And some people did, well, they were kind of threatening to refuse to pay it. There were riots in places like Kent. It was an extraordinary political phase, the introduction of the poll tax. And it could be the same happens now, but in a way, in a much more desperate situation. I mean, the poll tax, you were talking about big bills for local services, but not on this scale. Um, this scale is it, it, it's more than, um, uh, you know, the quadrupling of oil prices and its consequences, which happened in 1973. And I can tell you all hell broke loose then. And all hell will break loose now politically. The two candidates for the leadership are in a kind of fantasy world where they're saying things to please this tiny party membership. But when they face the reality of this, they're going to be pretty frightened. Bigger figures than the duo competing for the uh, uh, prime ministership, bizarrely, were really frightened in the 1970s. Uh, Heath, first of all, who had um, been a formidable uh, cabinet minister, was really frightened by not just the quadrupling of oil prices and the industrial unrest in Britain, but by the fact that under his government, it looked as if a million were going to be unemployed. And there was a kind of acceptance in both the Tory and Labour parties that a million was unacceptable, economically and socially. And so he started intervening on a scale that he had had no intention of doing when he won that 1970 election. And then, of course, he famously called the 74 election in February, posing the question, who governs? And the response came back, not you. And so he and a team uh, just incomparably bigger than the team likely to form the Liz Truss era, or possibly the Rishi Sunak era, Willie White Law and people like that advising him closely. He just didn't really know what to do as inflation soared. He had people on the right arguing counterintuitively, like Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell said, you should back the miners. Because of the oil price rise, the miners deserve pay increases on the basis of market principles. They are more valuable to us in the United Kingdom, and we should pay them accordingly. And he, Heath couldn't believe it, that Powell was backing the miners. But he had, you know, many other political pressures, and it all fell apart. And then the highly experienced Harold Wilson, cabinet minister in the late 1940s, through all the twists and turns of Labour in opposition in the 50s, a prime minister for six years in the 60s, came in and, and again was overwhelmed to the point of extreme exhaustion. He was only in his late 50s, you know, I mean, he wasn't the wellest of people, but... Um, I mean, he did very well, actually, between 74 and 76 in ways that have been uh, not fully recognised, but I think are about to be fully recognised in a new biography by uh, Nick Thomas Simmons. Nick Thomas Simmons is a very important political figure. Uh, he's in the shadow cabinet and has historical context. Anyway, that book's coming out in September and I'll be speaking to him about it. And then Callaghan came in, you know, burdened almost by experience, a chancellor, a home secretary, a foreign secretary, and he was overwhelmed by it. And in some ways, I think the coming winter will be more challenging than the so-called winter of discontent between 78 and 79, because although inflation got much higher in the 70s uh, than it is projected to do now, there are so many other factors fueling this current crisis. And as I say, with Brexit there as an added huge problem, uh, I think there's, you see, we had North Sea oil about to burst onto the scene in the late 70s. Uh, sadly, the Thatcher government blew it. The Thatcher miracle, by the way, so-called, was financed by North Sea oil and a sort of weird 
economic imperialism in reverse, where because unemployment had been so high, labour was cheap in the UK, people were desperate to work and would work under what became known as flexible labour conditions. And that attracted uh, foreign companies to come in here and employ people. I was living in the northeast when Nissan arrived and people were so grateful that they were here. As I say, it was like imperialism in reverse. And they were right to be grateful. They were good employers to the point that with Brexit, when they threatened to leave, the government had a nervous breakdown, given them some deal to keep them here. So it was based on low pay, flexible labour markets, uh, then the single market, uh, the boom of the financial markets, many people coming to London because it was part of the European Union and sort of has a closeness to America, the same language and so on. Well, all of that is jeopardised by Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost's hard Brexit. Take a deep breath and get ready for one hell of an autumn and winter politically and economically. Now, some of you will be listening to this on your uh, holidays, walking, you know, in beautiful places. So I hope all of that cheered you up. And now we're going to your questions. And I'm going to say this. I got a tweet, I think, from somebody saying, what's the email address? I just started listening. Didn't know the email address. So here it is. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. And the Steve Rick is uh, Steve, R-I-C, and then 14 at iCloud.com. So there it is. Uh, many of you know it because I've got hundreds of emails. I'm going to get through a few uh, in our time together now. Uh, and as I said, uh, we're going to begin with uh, the Reverend Canon Paul Arbothnot, who uh, is from the Diocese of Cork. Uh, Cloyne and Ross. I'm going to put my reading glasses on here. None of you can see me putting on. I'm so old. I'm so old. I need reading glasses. And Paul says, as we're now into August, the football season is beginning. England is basking in the afterglow of the rampant lionesses devouring all before them. With all this in mind, I was wondering which political parties correlate with which Premier League football teams. Let me kick this one off. The Tory party, Chelsea, until recently awash with Russian money. Labour, Arsenal, they look promising but always find it difficult to deliver in Europe. The Lib Dems, Leicester City, once had a grip on power but now a bit mid-table and not talked about. Brexit Party, Manchester United, finds it impossible to stay in Europe for any length of time. The DUP, Millwall, that whole nobody likes us but we don't care vibe. And then Paul said, any better suggestions? God, blimey. No way. That's, they were brilliant. I can't, I can't even offer one to uh, top those, Paul. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, he said, as a nod to your recent Joycean studies. Yeah, I studied uh, Ulysses up until June, I think. That was fantastic. Uh, I shall, oh, wow. Let's, oh, yeah. I shall bring you some lemon soap from Sweeney's uh, when I see you in October at King's Place. Oh, thank you. Wow. Yeah, this is a reference to Ulysses and uh, uh, an important uh, episode in the book, which then recurs. Uh, like most things in Ulysses, once something happens, there are references back all the time. Um, well, I'm already, yeah, there's a King's Place in September and then there's the sequel in October after the party conferences and all the dramas that would have been played out. Thank you, Paul. I could, we could all do with a laugh after my economic reflections. So that's um, perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, Dan China writes, if it's okay with you, yeah, let me make a quick comment about holiday reading lists and then ask a question. You made some recommendations uh, for holiday reading. Oh, yeah. And you said, but you didn't um, mention your own book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Yeah, that, oh, oh God, blimey. I don't know why I missed that opportunity to push that one. Dan writes whether anyone will be writing uh, Rishi Sunak as a prime minister we never had in years to come. Quite probably, Dan, it will be uh, a sequel because one of the themes of the book is that chancellors who are seen as likely next prime ministers often fail to seize the crown. I wonder whether that Bank of England report might help his campaign a bit. I doubt it, but I do wonder. 
Dan wonders, is there a big difference between Rishi Sunak and Dennis Healy or Liz Truss and Barbara Castle? Or is it my imagination? Yeah. Were there bigger figures in the past? I think objectively so. Wherever you stand in the sort of political spectrum, uh, and you could do it with um, uh, previous Tory heavyweights. I've mentioned some of them, those from the 70s. They were deeply flawed, but big, rounded figures. People think it was perhaps to do with the Second World War and their connections in that, not least the build-up in the 30s, then the war itself. I don't know. Yeah, I'm afraid that that Sunak is not in Healy's League and Liz Truss is most emphatically not in Barbara Castle's. So, uh, yeah, different uh, different things. Oh, yeah. Uh, he says, uh, Dan says, I'm listening to the Patreon podcast, which I love, while carving wooden spoons in the garden on the South Coast. Happy to join your army of craftspeople in the new pod society. That's a good word you've just made up, pod society. Yeah, for new listeners, there's a sort of rock and roll politics cooperative around the country and the world where we are all specialists in various things which keep us going during these challenging times. Thank you very much. Christopher Hilton says, Dear Steve and all the Rock and Roll Politics Collective, thank you very much, Christopher. I can't come up with any new activities undertaken while listening to the podcast. It's ironing, cooking and commuting here. Well, that's quite a lot, Chris. I'm exhausted just thinking of you doing all three. But I can add a new skill set to the collective. I'm an archivist by trade. So if you need our deliberations preserved or indeed advice on the right heritage environment in which to store priceless Union Jack socks, I'm your man. Well, I think we might need all of that. My Union Jack socks are being well worn. I hope all of you are wearing yours with pride as a tribute to Lord Frosty Frost. And yeah, well, just imagine people listening to us a lot on this podcast in a hundred years' time. I wonder what I wonder what they would make of it all. So yeah, we could well use these skills. Anyway, Christopher says, I'd like to chip in on one of the questions discussed in a recent podcast when a listener from Ireland talked about how transformative joining the single market had been for Ireland, the sheer weirdness of the UK wanting to leave such an obviously advantageous arrangement. And why was it that the UK alone has sought to do this? You answered that the reason was that only in the UK had this become a core part of the platform of a major political party, the Tories, as opposed to a fringe outfit. But surely that just pushes the question back a step. Why did that happen in the UK and not elsewhere? Good question. Obviously, there may be various factors. Our tax non-dom-owned tabloid press is one. I can't help feeling that many people's British national identity is steeped in memories of empire, victory in World War II, etc., and still sees the UK as a top nation and is outraged by the idea that we might have to deal with the EU, etc. All too late now. Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting question. Why did the Tories, the great election winner in England at least, uh, become an anti-EU party? And I think you've answered it. There is this British exceptionalism and um, there are other factors. You mentioned the media in Britain, but it is the broader answer, I think, why we've left. It is that the Tory party became a Leave party. The other kind of mainstream parties in Europe Uh, are not Leave parties. And even Le Pen at the last presidential election in France wasn't advocating uh, Leave. Thank you, Christopher. Uh, Yeah, as an archivist, let us know how all our views, including yours just uh, expressed in your email, be immortalised forever. So, you know, people, can you imagine academics in about 300 years' time will be citing us saying, oh, yeah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, today I'm going to look at uh, the rock and roll politics community from August 2022 to shine light on... Anyway, I'm going bonkers here in the sunshine. And talking of which, Nigel Tantrum writes, I'm sweltering in Tokyo whilst listening to your podcast. Oh, particularly enjoyed your Michael Foote impression, uh, who once said his speaking style was due primarily to asthma. Yeah, uh, absolutely, it, it was. It explains, I think, the pause... But uh, in the middle of a sentence, and yet, um, interestingly, like uh, people like Brian Walden, who didn't have a pure voice, he had a magnetic uh, oratorical style. And indeed, Andrew Kitching, 
has sent me a wonderful link to one of Foote's greatest speeches from the House of Commons, which you should all listen to. Andrew, thank you for that. I did know about it, actually. Michael Foote was shadow leader of the House of Commons, and he does this wonderful speech. It must have been in early 1980, where he just slaughters Norman Tebbit in a hilarious way. Uh, the, The tragedy, really, was that that was one of the speeches that helped Michael Foote become... Uh, Prime Minister, and what am I saying? Prime Minister, leader of the leader of the Labour Party in the autumn of 1980, and uh, doomed the great Michael to three years of hell. Anyway, uh, Nigel says whether Sunak or Trust, they both seem to be modifying their original manifesto on the hoof. This will be fine in the Commons with their majority, but don't the Lords feel free to rebel against anything that wasn't in the manifesto? interesting times. That's one way of putting it, Nigel. Yeah, the House of Lords has a theoretical right to vote against things when there was not a mandate for it uh, in the manifesto. Let's see if they use it. I suspect they will. But mind you, Boris Johnson is about to flood the place with admirers of him and cakeist economic policies. Denise uh, Willier writes, I've just listened to your special episode. This was on the Patreon about Cameron and Hilton. Fascinating. Thank you, Denise. Though I say it myself, I do think it was quite interesting because it's been a period sort of airbrushed out of history, really. Certainly the rise of uh, Cameron uh, with Hilton by his side. Uh, it struck me that there's a theme of some PMs not understanding the motivations and drivers of their advisers. Also, the superficiality of some PMs with regards to having a political vision uh, beyond getting themselves elected. I'd put Cameron, May and Johnson in that bracket. This got me wondering about Starmer and his team and special advisor. Who are they? Who Has he got an equivalent, say, to um, Steve Hilton? Denise, I don't think he really has. He is not short of advice, you know. I mean, he's he's got all these people from the new Labour era because prime ministers are young now, former prime ministers are young now. And so he's got advice from all of that lot. And he's got his team who are committed to him, um, uh, devoted to him. But because, maybe because he got into politics quite late, he didn't form a ring of close people who he knew and rated and respected And he's had trouble, really, forming a team that will make the best of him. You've got to not only have that talent, but also you have to like being with them. I mean, Blair really loved being with Campbell and and Peter Mandelson. There were times, you know, at some crisis in opposition where uh, Tony Blair's like, get me Peter, get me Peter. Yeah, Peter makes me laugh. And, And sure enough, Peter would come in and make him laugh and feel better and and so they have to have that role as well. And I know uh, Tony Blair once said to me about Alistair Campbell, but this was when he was Prime Minister, I think Alistair's a genius in, in terms of reading the rhythm of news. And uh, you know, uh, Blair was quite sort of perceptive about the people around him. And Campbell was able to read the rhythm of news. And you have to have been a very experienced journalist to be able to do that. In other words, he was able to say to Blair... This story is deadly serious. Uh, don't worry, this story will last 24 hours. That's not all he did. You know, y- y- you work out how to project through this mad media that we have in Britain. But of course, he had, you know, he had worked, he had known Campbell for years as a journalist. And similarly, even with people like Theresa May, she had worked with Nick Timothy and others for so long. They were almost... Uh, yeah, I think you could call these people friends as well as giving fantastically potent, useful advice. And I, and I say, although uh, Keir Starmer's office is absolutely devoted to him winning and them winning, I don't think he's got those kind of equivalents. And uh, I think it would be better for him if he had. Uh, thank you, Denise. Matthew Ryder, I'm enjoying your podcast, which I usually listen to while walking in the Cambridgeshire countryside near Huntington. That What a ma- romantic image, Matthew, of you doing that uh, with the sun, I hope, now sort of perhaps rising in the morning as you listen. Uh, I've uh, always followed your career with interest. I'm always alarmed when people say that. But I'm pleased you have. Thank you, uh, uh, Matthew, for that. I think you made some important... Oh, we're back to Keir Starmer. 
I agree with you that he has many positive attributes. Yeah, I think he has. I'm not sure if his policy of instructing his front bench not to stand up picket lines is the right one, however. Labour still has strong links with unions and key workers have not been well treated. I can remember Shirley Williams and Fred Mully standing on the picket line during the Grunwick dispute in the 1970s. Neither could be described as left-wing firebrands. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And uh, I remember too the images of Shirley Williams and others. To be honest, I I think the sacking of these people are probably unnecessary. Uh, But I think his stance is the right one. You cannot, uh, as a potential prime minister, he's not a union leader. You know, old Lynch, he can do what he has to do. But as an alternative prime minister, you cannot argue for a return uh, to the negotiating table and then uh, in which by implication the government will be a mediating force and then come wholly down on one side and anyway you shouldn't because there's a bigger picture who's going to pay for the uh, pay increase if the union's got the full amount uh, will it be a higher train fare we've already got the highest train fares in europe are we going to put them up again and then they will go up again anyway because of inflation and then it feeds on itself And what about the users of trains, some of whom are on low income without cars and are dependent on these trains running reliably? Are you going to say, oh, we're not on your side? I think it's much more complex. But I agree with you that uh, probably sacking, uh, you know, the the sacking uh, of these front benches. There are probably some in his team who think, oh, well, this makes him seem strong. I just think it highlights uh, division and internal tension and probably frankly, exaggerates internal tension. Kathy Mears. I've been pondering over many weeks about the use of the word authentic as a complementary description of various politicians. Does it mean from an ordinary background? Or perhaps that you are what you appear to be, whether genuinely working class or unapologetically stinking rich. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, The art of appearing authentic, which is a contradiction in terms, of course, is an actually one. But it's basically, Cathy, those who feel or look at ease with themselves on the public stage. And uh, maybe you're talking about Mick Lynch, who's being praised for his authenticity. He's at ease with himself on the public stage. It's probably not a holy hymn, what we're seeing. But he appears authentic. Boris Johnson appears authentic, even though we know it's partly an act. Uh, Tony Blair appeared authentic. In some ways, I think with him, I mean, he could act and was actorly, but it, it, it sort of was him, I think, as a public performer. Um, so I think that's what it is. It's the art of appearing at ease with yourself on the public stage. Thank you, Cathy. Michael Harris from Lewis. I'm an insomniac. I listen to the podcast at around 3am in the morning. It doesn't help with the condition as the subject matter is so utterly unbelievable these days. It sets my mind racing as you analyse. Worst thing for sleep. Uh, Michael, maybe don't listen at three in the morning. Maybe get up and go for a walk at seven and listen because you're right, especially today with the state of the economy. Not good if you're an insomniac. I was struck by your view that Sunak may well leave Parliament at the next election. He's since said he won't, but I would be surprised if he did. In these days of highly opportunist politicians, look at at uh, Javid. Uh, Yeah, the Saj backing Liz Trust in in, in an attempt to get a good cabinet post. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? It seems to me very likely that if Trust loses power in a couple of years, Sunak will stand again for the leadership. He won with his MPs. The Tories are ruthless. Sunak is still relatively young. He may yet sense an opportunity to lead the Tories in 2024. Yeah, maybe, Michael. I doubt it, though. I think once you have been cast as a loser in a leadership contest. It's very hard to come back as a winner uh, soon afterwards. Uh, I think it's more likely that he leaves British politics, especially if he loses badly. But we will, let's see. Mark Holstock, uh, 
Uh, Keir Starmer is no Blair and it's the confluence of events which will be his downfall. While Starmer and Labour are moderately tuned to the need to find new forms of energy, renewables, to power the nation, uh, Starmer is completely deaf to the consequences of Brexit. This is one of the things which might stop him from ever being Prime Minister. My prediction is that no one will win a sufficient majority to be able to form a government without the coalition uh, the next election. Uh, yeah, but if that happens, Mark, uh, Keir Starmer will be Prime Minister. The, the, the smaller parties are not going to buttress a fifth term of a Conservative government. But Mark goes on to argue, ultimately, under a new Labour leader, they will have to accept a return to the European single market as the economy will have spiralled into recession. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we will move inevitably, but slowly, sadly, to a Norway position, because the economy here is going to be worse than elsewhere as a result of the consequences of Brexit. Uh, Keir Starmer's position, you must always analyse, in my view, Mark, the space on the political stage. Given what happened in 2019, the election and the referendum in 2016, there is limited space on the political stage to reopen this whole argument about how close we should be to the European Union. But I think a wily leader like Harold Wilson, Harold Wilson, one of his favourite was, favourite phrases was, I think it's very important to keep all options open. And I think Wilson would have found a way to keep the option open of uh, rejoining the single market and customs uh, union. But it is difficult, really difficult, because I think it's slightly easier with, with, with Truss, actually, if it is her, because she was a Remainer uh, herself in 2016. It is tricky after the what happened in 2019, and there is limited space, but the, the art of opposition is to create space. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't buy this thing anymore that there's no buyer's remorse over Brexit. It, it, it will become clearer. There are many red herrings, the pandemic, Ukraine and so on. It will come clearer how bloody damaging Frosty's deal was. Mark said he was writing whilst uh, or listening uh, whilst Jane and the cat Leo do their Pilates. Well, there's an image to conjure with. Uh, I, hope, I hope they listen, the cat and Jane, whilst doing their Pilates, Mark. Harry Lewis says, hi, I hope you're well. Yeah, thank you, Harry. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you. And enjoyed the books. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, yeah. No, it was Harry who's asked for recollections in the 2005 general election. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do it, Harry. Uh, but I'm afraid you'd have to subscribe for the because it's a bonus podcast. I haven't got time to do election specials with all that's going on on this podcast, but it's coming up next at your suggestion. And you're right, whilst not particularly memorable and a low turnout, I was gripped by the dark nature of the contest. Exactly, Harry. I, me too. With Iraq clearly in the backdrop of people's minds. I'd love to get your thoughts on Blair's third successive election victory and why it seems so dark. Yeah, interesting. Patreon in September. Bonus podcast. Stephen Townsley, thank you, Harry. Uh, if economic growth is needed to save Britain, then the engines of growth are surely productivity and increasing markets. Membership of the EU provided those things before. Both parties are committed to growth outside the EU. Neither seem to explain how that will happen. Yeah, and that is the key. You can claim uh, economic growth is your objective. So the debate is over how. We need some answers on that. And by the way, it's very hard when we've uh, slaughtered ourselves as, as we have done with Frosty's hard Brexit. Will Gregory, following on from your reflections about Keir Starmer and the risk of taking on the left, you mentioned a few weeks ago the case of Ken Livingstone and Tony Blair's self-defeating determination to block him from the London mayoral election. I remember this came more or less at the same time as a similar abortive attempt to block Rodri Morgan as First Minister in Wales took place. Yeah, it was, uh, he, he had an odd thing uh, about Rodri Morgan and, and wanted to stop him, Tony Blair. And so all counterproductive tends to be when you target individuals within uh, the Labour Party as a leader, it nearly always goes wrong. They become martyrs. Uh, the, the party as a whole becomes seized with a sense of unrest and unease. Then the wider vote electorate sort of just see a disturbed party what makes it worse is the media kind of 
uh, initially praises the attack on the, some poor sod, you know, like Rodri Morgan, as strong leadership, uh, which traps that leader into not being able to remedy the situation. That's another good example. I've completely forgotten about the Rodri Morgan example. Uh, and finally, Dominica Jewell has write, written, saying, I'm currently reading and enjoying your book on the Prime Ministers we never had. Thank you. In the chapter on Barbara Castle, you, you state, self-absorption is common in politics and most other fields, but successful politicians are able to hide their fascination with themselves as they seek allies. And Dominica says, to what extent do you think such an assessment might apply to Boris Johnson? Did he attempt to hide his fascination with himself? Did he ever feel the need to seek allies? In the same context, how do you think Liz Truss fits this profile? No. I mean, Boris Johnson's uh, self-absorption is, I think, vivid, too vivid, and is actually one of the reasons for his speedy downfall. Um, There are other prime ministers who, if they had appeared less self-absorbed, I think who might have got away with some of the things that he didn't get away with. So in the end, it's much better to hide it. Uh, Liz Truss? um, Yeah, no, it's kind of... We're again... I mean, this country is a plaything for these kind of curiously self-absorbed individuals. You know, she's playing being Margaret Thatcher and we're a kind of big experiment for her tax-cutting game. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Self-absorption, even when not hidden, can prevail briefly. But I think it is, in the end, those who can hide it and appear empathic and weighty, uh, you know, who, who are kind of more impressive and enduring in the end. You got me thinking there, Dominica. Very dangerous, very dangerous. Okay, well, look, uh, uh, I've got a lot to do. I'm getting up to Edinburgh quite soon. Uh, You'll all have tons to do, uh, whether you're on holiday or at work or whatever. So thank you so much for listening. Brilliant questions, brilliant everything. Uh, Hope to see you in Edinburgh, uh, where we'll be delving deep in different ways each day. And if not there, uh, maybe in King's Place for the Liz Trust, the new era special. Never thought I'd be uttering that phrase. Anyway, look, thank you so much again. Have a great week wherever you are. See you all soon. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>